So I recently had a conversation with a woman named Ruth. And Ruth told me a story from her childhood that I want to share with you this morning. When Ruth was in middle school, specifically eighth grade, her family would eat dinner together and she was the chatty one, so she would often be the last one at the table. Who's got the chatty one in their family? Or you know who they are, right? I know exactly who the chatty one is in my family, and if you don't know, you are the chatty one. (laughs) So one particular evening, Ruth found herself at the dinner table after dinner was done, sitting there with her father. And while she was still at the table, she was eager to let her dad in on her crazy life at school that day. And here's what Ruth said to her dad at the table. She said this, Dad, you won't believe it. Sarah said mean things about Jenny again. She told everyone that Jenny wanted to be Matt's girlfriend. So Sarah broke up with him and said that she liked Billy at lunch. And Jenny was so embarrassed and so mad. She spent lunch in the girls' bathroom and locked herself in the stall because she was being dramatic. Eighth grade, remember, okay? Some girls tried to comfort her in the bathroom, except Maggie and Lisa's group. They were happy that she was sad and went to tell the teacher that everyone was in the bathroom confessing all the things that they had done last year when they were seventh graders, things they would never do now because they were way more mature. Then Jenny and Sarah made up and became best friends again. I don't know why, but I don't do anything mean to anyone, and none of them ever... And then she stopped and realized that her father at the kitchen table seemed completely unaware that she was even talking to him. He didn't even raise an eyebrow, roll his eyes, laugh at the silliness, or even show an ounce of interest in what she was saying to him. So Ruth got mad in that moment. She got real mad. She wanted her father to care about what was going on in her life, and he didn't. She wanted to be acknowledged by him, and he didn't respond or even engage at all. And this was typical of her father when she was younger. So she was ready at that time to call him out, and this is what she said to her dad. Dad, why don't you ever care or respond when I talk to you? And her father, without a hint of emotion, explanation, or empathy, responded with these six words. Ready? You have not finished the dishes. So Ruth silently got up from the table and started to wash the dishes. Now those six words, you have not finished the dishes, ended up shaping much of Ruth's view of not only her dad, but of God for a very long time. With her father, the internalized implications of his response to her was this, until you do what I'm requiring you to do, which is the dishes, I won't care about you. Ruth thought what I do is more important than who I am. I'm not worthy of my dad's time if I'm not doing a good job. Ruth, you have, you have to earn your right to be a paid attention to. 
She thought, I can't ask for anything if I haven't held up my end of the deal. And that internal dialogue became the framework for how Ruth perceived God as her heavenly father. And when she did, she saw God saying things like this. You haven't read your Bible? Don't come to me until you do. You haven't made the right choices lately? Don't cry for help now that you're in trouble. You haven't acted very Jesus-like lately? Clean yourself up before you come to me. You ever been there? The way Ruth has? I certainly have. I have believed in my heart and in my actions that if I do what I'm supposed to do, God will love me, accept me, give me what I want, and by the way, be pleased with the fantastic job that I've been doing in relation to everyone else who's kind of a failure. I believe that. I believe that this morning. But let me just say that this is not how God works. Why? Because this is not grace. If this were how God worked, we would spend our lives operating out of self-pity, self-condemnation, guilt, shame, and then kind of what I mentioned before, self-righteousness and cultural cues that define our worthiness. This is important because what we believe about God our Father determines how we come to him or if we come to him at all. The Bible tells us that God is gracious in spite of your faithlessness. God is welcoming in spite of your self-righteousness. God is loving even if you're ashamed of your track record. Our God is all about grace. And it's on full display right here in Genesis 3.15. So I'm going to back up one verse just to give you a little bit of context. Genesis 14, 3, 14, sorry. says, the Lord God said to the serpent, so this is Satan after he's deceived Adam and Eve. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. If you don't understand that, watch the sermon from last week. Kenny did a fantastic job on that. And between your offspring and her offspring, he's speaking of, of Eve specifically, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Kenny let the cat out of the bag last week because my favorite translation of Genesis 3.15 is not in the English Standard Version. It's in the NIV, the New, New, the New International Version. It says this, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Can you just feel that? Just freaking, yeah. Sorry, I, that was bad. It should be G-rated. I like that better, don't you? Crush. Can you just feel it? <laughs> and Satan, you will strike his heel. So what's happening here? How can we see grace in this proclamation of judgment on the serpent, Satan, after the fall of Adam and Eve? Well, it's common 
to define grace as God's unmerited favor, so something that you haven't earned that God gives to you, or even God's provision for the undeserving. That's what people commonly define grace as. But those definitions are almost too weak. They're weak because God's grace is shown not just to those who don't deserve it, but to those who deserve precisely the opposite. There's a, sense in, there's a sense in which everything that God does is gracious. Because none of us deserves anything. Adam deserved nothing, even before the fall, even before they sinned. The gift of life was gracious. So was the garden, that was gracious. And giving him a wife, that was gracious. And meaningful work to do, that was gracious on behalf of God. But this isn't the way the Bible usually talks about God's grace, probably for the simple reason that the fullness of grace, grace abounding, the fullness of it is seen only against the black backdrop of sin. So I have a podcast. Who doesn't, right? Everybody's got one. I know, it's kind of lame, but I, it's what I do for my ministry, all right? I have a podcast specifically for 18 to 28-year-olds, like young people. And we recently started filming more video for the episodes, so in my basement, I turned my little office into what I label as like a cool podcast studio. So we painted the walls behind me, and I put up these like uh, dark gray, black, like kind of black-looking uh, felt tiles and we put some cool lighting up on it. And the room down there used to be light cream colored. And I thought that was boring, so I decided to do dark and moody. Well, little did I know that when I'd start filming, the quote-unquote little bit, what I thought of gray hair on the sides of my head, suddenly looked platinum white against the dark background. And this bothered me because my podcast is for young people. The darkness highlighted the white in front of it, or gray, light gray in front of it. <laughs> Couldn't see it very well when the walls were cream, but oh baby, you can see it now. Okay, so the full, do you understand what I'm saying? The fullness of grace in all of its beautiful purity is best seen against the black backdrop of sin. You see the contrast. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson once put it this way when he said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. In other words, you won't understand the grace of God until you realize that your sin is, sin is kind of a big deal. Now, some of you in this room can really see your sin. And it's bitter. You know that you've failed. You know what you've done in the past. And the sweetness of Jesus and his grace to you is like honey. You cannot believe that God has been so gracious to you. And you rejoice in the sheer amazement that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on all of your guilt and was condemned in your place. And all of his perfection was placed onto you. It's the best news ever. 
And you're like, praise God for rescuing me in my rebellion and filth. You see that your sin is bitter, and consequently, Christ is sweet. And some of you in here are really good at seeing other people's sin. The people I was just talking about. You're like, yeah, they need the grace of God. And the sweetness of Jesus to you really isn't there. It's more like cracking open a can of Dr. Pepper and taking a big sip right after you tested positive for COVID in the late summer, early fall of 2020. In other words, you couldn't taste anything. But the problem wasn't with the soda when you drank it. The problem was with you. The soda was fine. You just had COVID. For some of you, the reason Jesus tastes like LaCroix instead of Dr. Pepper is because you don't believe you need the grace of God. Are you tracking with me here? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. You don't see the bitterness, the bitterness of your pride, your self-righteousness, your constant comparison to other people as you pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you're better than them. You have trouble tolerating any other believer who tries to draw you out to see your own sin because you're like, what sin? They're the sinful ones, not me. You have not experienced the full grace of God because you haven't seen yourself in the reality of your own depravity. You aren't able to admit your blind spots because you think you're actually living up to what a good Christian person is supposed to do. But listen to me. The goal isn't to live up to anything. It's to admit that you'll never be able to live up to anything. Till sin be bitter. Your sin, not someone else's, your sin. Christ will not be sweet. Jesus will be a boring checklist of to-dos for you until you taste how good he is. And that only comes by first tasting the disgustingness of your sin. You hear me? You hear me, uh, 18-year-old Shelby, me, who thought he could buy his way into God's acceptance by being a good kid? Uh-uh, it does not work that way. Some of you need to repent of what one theologian called your damnable good works. Your goodness might be what's getting in the way of you actually knowing God. Your goodness might be preventing you from eternal life. Grace cannot be earned through being good. It is given for free. And quite a few quote-unquote good Christians have a lot of trouble with that because they really want to earn it. But you can't. One old Puritan said, you want to know the difference between an authentic Christian and a nominal Christian, like in name only, like a religious person? 
When an authentic Christian sees his sin and begins to repent, he feels closer to God. And when a nominal Christian sees his sin and begins to repent, he feels further from God. Why? Because the religious person, the nominal Christian, has based his acceptance with God on his works. And when he sees that he's a sinner, he thinks, how could God possibly accept me for what I've done? And it reveals the fact that he is a self-righteous, moralistic Pharisee. But an authentic Christian realizes that when you get back in touch with God, it is all of grace. The best thing that can possibly happen to you, regardless of where you're at this morning, is repent. Repent is a churchy word that basically means make a U-turn. Just turn around from where you are going and run toward God. Repent and taste the sweetness of Jesus and his grace to you. The fullness of grace is only seen against the black backdrop of our sin. So the verse that we just looked at, in Adam's case, it's seen in God's gentle dealing with him following the fall and the promise of the deliverer to come. He will crush the head of the serpent. Now, later on, we read in the Bible, it's seen in God's continuing care of the people of Israel in spite of their constant wandering away from him. And then when it comes to us, we're able to see his grace really well in his commentary on Genesis. James Boyce said it this way. He said, above all, it's seen at the cross of Christ where in spite of the sin of man in hounding the Lord Jesus Christ to death by crucifixion, God was nevertheless providing the basis by which all who call on the name of the Lord might be saved. Grace actually means that God has provided for us in every way, in every possible way, both physically and spiritually, in spite of the condemnation we deserve. And then he goes on to explain the nature of grace as believers gain more through the work of Christ, than what they lost in Adam. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Some of you are like, no, but I hope you get it eventually. We gain more. We gain more. The Bible says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We gain more, which is grace, through the work of Christ than what we lost in the failure of Adam. So what does that look like? Someone says, can you give me some specific grace examples on what you mean? Yes, there are lots, but I'm going to highlight just two today, okay? One, his grace is his life in us. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Later on in other places in the New Testament, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 8.11 says, The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you 
lives in you. His grace is his life in us. And that has two very important consequences. So the first grace that we experience has very, two very important consequences. The first is this. His life in us is eternal. It will not die, ever. He is the hope of glory who dwells inside you if you are a Christian. The God of the universe doesn't reside in a temple or a tabernacle anymore. He lives in you if you are a believer. If you said, if you said at any point yes to Jesus, his offer to believe in him and his perfecting work in your life by his life, death and resurrection, if according to Romans 10, 9, you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if that's you... When you said yes to him, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 that he puts his spirit to dwell inside of you. Yes, the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you as a believer, if you are a believer. And this life is eternal. It will not die. You will not die. Your body will die, but it will be resurrected again, and you will live forever. What does this mean? This, mean that this means that your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. I'm 46. I embrace this a lot, because I, I remember my 20s, and I felt good all the time, and I don't feel good any of the time now. But I have to remind myself my best days are ahead of me. They're not behind me. Second consequence. His life in us means that we will seek right living. When I was in ninth grade, I wasn't a Christian yet. But I went to youth group. Because I thought that's what you were supposed to do to be good. And I met a kid there named Tyler. And Tyler went to a different school, and I remember Tyler really not fitting the mold of what you might call a typical youth group kid. He had a really foul mouth. He cussed a lot. He made a lot of inappropriate references to girls, and he just had this kind of rebellious spirit about him. And I remember only having one short but poignant conversation with Tyler. It's always stuck with me, even up to this day. A short conversation that confused me for years after I moved at the end of my ninth grade year and never saw Tyler again. I think I remember asking him something like, why he did and said the things that he did and still came to youth group. So I asked him something like that. And I'll never forget, this is how he responded. He looked at me very serious, and he goes, listen. The, the, the air just went off. <laughs> so listen. This is what he said. I've asked Jesus into my heart, and he's forgiven me of my sins. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to do what I feel like doing whenever I want. He's forgiven me, so why not? Now, I wasn't a Christian at this time. 
And that frustrated me for years. Because as a young person without any theological or biblical awareness, I knew there was something off about that. There was something wrong with it. Even back then, I knew. The grace of God's life in us will always strive after righteousness. It will hate sin. It will cling to the good. In John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience to Christ communicates love to him. So if you're aware as a believer, of the excruciating agony Jesus went through for you in his death and the cosmic separation he experienced from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity on the cross, that he voluntarily took all of your sin and failure onto himself, that he humbly laid down his life so that you would never taste true spiritual death if you truly know and believe all of that and said yes to the payment he made, living a life of purposeful, willing sinfulness is not how you respond. 1 John 1.6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 3.6 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. These verses should rattle you. But I want to be clear. This is not saying that if you ever sin after you become a Christian, that it's all null and void. Or you never actually were saved by God and it wasn't the genuine article. That's not what this is saying. If you look at the verses closely, it says, walk in darkness, keeps on sinning. Walking involves steady, repeated actions a person could keep up in a sustained way for a long period of time. Keeps on means keeps on. Intentionality, purposefully, willingly leading a life of sin without care or concern for what their sin means, what it does, and what it destroys. So his grace is his life in us. And that means, number one, we will have eternal life that never dies. And number two, we will seek to live a life that's honoring to God. So that's my first example of, of what grace do. Second, his grace will lead to authentic joy. Joy. If, you know, if you're not a Christian and you're here and you know a bunch of Christians and they're kind of boring, they don't understand grace. So Post Malone, a musical artist, recently came out with a new album. And his newest album is called Austin. And at the end of that album is a song called Joy. Let me, let me read a few lyrics from this, this song. Joy is the coldest lover I know. The harder I try, the more I become miserable. The higher I fly, the lower I go. Is what we want who we are? Pray for me. I don't want to be miserable. 
joy for many seems to be this unattainable mirage on the horizon. Always visible, but never quite within our reach. And the harder some people try, like Post Malone, spent $4 million on a Pokemon card, the harder some people try to run after joy in this world, even with all of its success and all the pleasure it can bring, I'm not denying that, the more miserable people become. It's something we all want, but most of us are not experiencing. A study at the end of last year showed that young adults aged 17 to 24 reported that they were far less happy than their older counterparts were at their age. So in just five years, young people now report being 25% less happy than 17 to 24-year-olds were just five years ago. People want joy. And not just like fleeting happiness that like washes in real quick like the tide and then goes away in the next moment. They want lasting joy that will quench the thirst of their souls. Well, guess what? I have good news. The grace we have been talking about all morning, the gift that God offers to anyone who would take it, anyone, the undeserved favor God extends to you in the good news of his payment for your sin and his perfection being credited to your account, that thing we call grace, is something that will genuinely lead to true, authentic, legitimate, all those words mean the same thing, it will lead to joy. God's grace legitimately leads to joy. And if you're like, I'm a Christian, and I'm not joyful, the problem is not with God. The problem is with you. It will lead to joy. How could it not lead to joy? The king of the universe, who holds the fabric of the cosmos together by his sheer will, by his little pinky, this God wants to extend love and kindness and favor and blessing and real relationship to you by grace. Something that cannot ever be earned, only received. He wants to give it to you and bring you into the most amazing love relationship you've ever known. And in that relationship, you will be known and accepted forever. That will lead to joy. Real joy. Not like fleeting joy. Not like gone in a split second like vape mist joy. Lasting, eternal, beautiful joy. Now, I'm not dumb. I know that to most people, by any kind of logical reason, grace, actually, it doesn't make sense. Grace, does, it really doesn't make sense. You can't get something for nothing. And you certainly can't get someone who knows you to the depths in all of your filth 
and yet loves you to the skies with a ravishing love of perfection? Real life doesn't work that way. It's literally too good to be true. But what if it wasn't? Or maybe you've just heard this so many times. You've been to church your whole life, and you're kind of just numb to it. You hear grace all the time. Grace, grace, grace. Brandywine grace. Amazing grace. Grace, grace, grace. The message has been received. You understand it, but it hasn't done anything to legitimately change you. Why? Martin Luther once said, religion is the default of the human heart. Meaning, we understand the definition of grace, but we do in order to get with everything. So if we are religious, we can earn the favor of God. This is what we believe. The message of grace, you have heard this, but it has not changed you. You're still just a religious person. A couple years ago, I took, I have two daughters. I took them to the arcade on the boardwalk in Ocean City, Maryland. And when we went, we went straight for the skee-ball machine. That's what they wanted to do. We wanted to do skee-ball. So you guys know this, right? A a skee-ball works. You put a quarter in. When you put the quarter in, the music starts on the machine and the lights come on and those 10 wooden balls, crack, come down, right? So we're playing ski ball and my daughter moves down like two or three machines and she puts a quarter in and nothing happens. And she goes, Daddy, this isn't working. And I was like, what happened? She goes, I put, I put money in and it's not working. And I said, you put a quarter in the machine? And she said, yeah. And I was like, so I came over, I did what any dad would do. I banged on the machine, right? When I banged, the second time, I heard the quarter drop into the machine. When I heard it, boom, lights came on, music started, 10 wooden balls, uh, crack. Some of you have heard the message of the gospel for so long that it doesn't mean anything to you, and you certainly don't live your life with any power or joy. The quarter has been played. You've heard the message. It's in there. You've heard it for so long. The gospel message of grace has been received, but it hasn't dropped into the depths of your heart. And the incredible thing is that grace wants to come along and bang on the machine of your heart. He wants the quarter to drop by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit who's calling you. So the question is, will you say yes? Will you say yes to him today? No matter how many times you may have heard the message of grace, will you finally say yes? Will you say yes to him today even though you think is too good to be true? God has provided the offspring of the woman. Remember when we talked about that like 25 minutes ago or 35, an hour and a half ago? 
He's provided the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent for you. He did it for you. And Jesus was struck on the heel, on the cross. But he's defeated the enemy. He wants to be in a relationship with you through grace. All you got to do is take it. Now, I'm really excited this morning because we're about to hear from a few people who experienced grace abounding. A few people who took it and said yes to a relationship with the king of the universe. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hear their stories. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for giving yourself to us that we might know you. Thank you for being struck on the heel. And thank you for crushing the head of the serpent. As a result, little idiot 46-year-olds like me in Downingtown, Pennsylvania in the year 2023 can experience grace from you. I experience your grace because of what you did 2,000 years ago when you crushed the head of the serpent. May we all understand that? Yes. But may it drop into our hearts in a way that it never has before. May we say yes to you and will you change us. By the power of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.